from WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. When I was 14, I stumbled on this way of looking at the world that seemed to explain everything to me. It was contained in a book called Chariots of the Gods by a guy named Eric Von Daniken. He explained this thing uh, that had never really made sense to me about the Bible. One of my problems with the Bible at that time is that the way it seemed to me was that the Bible (laughs) showed this world where God was constantly doing stuff and involved in people's lives and going around performing miracles. Things were happening all the time. And then it never made sense to me. Why did he just up and go? If he had such an interest, why did he just suddenly vanish from the scene? Eric Van Dadeken explained why, with a combination of archaeology, readings from the Bible, readings from myths from other peoples around the world, his argument was basically that thousands of years ago, our planet was being regularly visited by extraterrestrial beings. And they were going around doing all sorts of stuff, healing people, flying. They were making an impression. In those days, when I was 14, three days a week, two days after school, and then on Sunday, I attended the Baltimore Hebrew College. And when our class would be going over, for example, the story from Genesis about Abraham and Sarah and how they miraculously had a son, even though she was much too old to have a child, I would helpfully point out that that would be possible if there were space aliens around with superior medical technology. And I talked about these theories so passionately and so persistently that finally it got me kicked out of class. I was sent downstairs to the main office where I had to talk to the guy who ran the Hebrew College, Rabbi Smoller. Rabbi Smoller's office, I remember, as this uh, dimly lit place, lit by lamps with books everywhere and these big, comfortable chairs. And he was this man who was just smart and funny and, I have to say, completely bemused by the chance to engage a ninth grader in a substantive discussion of these issues. And as I remember, I went down there fairly regularly for a while. And by the time he was done with me, I no longer believed the arguments from Chariots of the Gods. The problem was, I also no longer believed in God. Something had happened where um, Chariots of the Gods had kind of been like an occupying army in my head that had killed off the army that was God's army. And then when Rabbi Smoller came in and killed off the Chariots of God's army, there was just basically nothing left. It, I, I was basically a, a blank slate. I was a clean blackboard. And I have never found again any kind of religious faith. Since the time I was 14, I just don't believe in God. Every now and then... um. Someone who I'm close to who's Christian tries to tell me about Jesus. Whenever that happens, I've taken it very seriously. And I have heard them out and I've looked at the Bible. And every time it's happened, it's come down to this. That I find that I don't seem to have a choice over whether or not I believe in God. I simply find that I do not. And trying to force myself to believe it would be like it would be like trying to convince yourself that you're in love with somebody who you're not in love with. Either you have faith or you don't. Either you believe or you don't. Your belief finds you, and then you and it have each other. 
And once your faith is set, I think only the biggest kind of seismic event in your life can change that, even if you want to change it. Well, today on our radio program, in this Christmas season, we bring you stories of people who are stuck in one kind of faith or another, for better or worse, and what happens because of their faith or lack of it. At one of our show, Adventures in Turning the Other Cheek, in the deck we ask the question, how do Christians and Muslims get along in the place where you would think they would get along worse than anywhere, in modern-day Afghanistan? And when they talk about religion together, what do they talk about? Act two, does size matter if you're talking about a cross? In that story, we visit the largest cross in the Western Hemisphere, and we find out that actually the answer to that question is yes, size does matter if you're talking about a cross. Act three, the epiphany biz, the story of what it means to be a secular person whose job is documenting miracles for Christians. Act four, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. In that act, an all-black church gets a white minister who has different ideas than they have about what it means to worship God, whiter ideas in their view, why they've kept him for 15 years. Despite that, stay with us. Act One, Adventures in Turning the Other Cheek. George Taubman is uniquely situated to explain how Christians and Muslims get along in a place where you might think that they wouldn't get along at all. For 17 years, he's built houses and done other relief work in Afghanistan as part of a Christian missionary group called Shelter Now. He speaks Pashtun, has gotten to know hundreds of Afghanis over the years. A month before the World Trade Center attack, George Taubman was one of eight Westerners imprisoned by the Taliban. They were captives for three months before they were rescued. He's back now in his home country, Germany. And he says that it was usually easier to talk about God in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, a country run by fundamentalist Muslims, than it usually is in Germany or the United States. Contrary to our societies where we come from, it is a very natural thing in Afghanistan to talk about your faith. And uh, we have plenty of opportunities because people are uh, very religious people and you get to know somebody, it doesn't take usually a long time that you speak about this also. Most often, would you bring it up or would they bring it up? Um, in most of the cases, they bring it up. Uh, was even while we were in prison with the Taliban, they, they came and they saw us reading our Bible. They said, oh, what is that? They said, this is the Holy Inchil. Oh, and then they wanted to see it and they talked about it. And, uh, and you know, immediately they, uh, they involved us in, uh, in a conversations. What would you say? How would you explain Christianity there? Well, often there are some misconceptions about us Christians. Often when they look at us Christians, uh, like Muslims who have been in the West, they say, you people, we never see you praying. You know, we don't even know whether you're praying. You know, like you see uh, their prayers is very much in public, you know, and uh, they don't see people like in Muslim countries where you see them reading the Quran. So they they often think that we Christians we you know we don't even have holy books you know or we we don't read them, and uh, of course they see a lot of uh, immorality in our countries you know sex films being shown on TV and uh, you know young people just living together without being married, and they think well that's maybe part of our our, our Christian culture, 
And they think that Christianity uh, sanctions that because these things are happening in a yeah, Christian country. They see country. a lot of these things happening, and so they think all oh, we all Christians are like this. Talking to you, I'm reminded of the story that I once heard about. Um, there's a German uh, Jewish filmmaker named uh, Marcel Ophuls, who in the last part of his uh, career in the 1960s made a number of films, uh, documentaries, The Sorrow and the Pity, Memory of Justice, where he was interviewing the Nazi high command from World War II. And he would make these films and people would ask him, how did he feel as a, as a German Jew interviewing, interviewing these, these uh, you know, former members of the Nazi high command, ones who had survived? Uh, wasn't it uncomfortable for him? And he, and he would say, like, no, it wasn't. He said he found, in fact, that he had more in common with, with them than he had with most people because they were both interested in history. They were both interested in the past. And, and I was wondering if there's any element of that in your dealings with um, Muslims in Afghanistan that 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 in a certain way, for somebody who who's organized his life around religion, that there's some kind of understanding that that one would have with anyone else who has completely organized his life or her life around religion, um, in, in a way that secular people would be outside of. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It. There are things where we understand them and they understand us. Where there's things in common, in a lot of areas in our lives and. Often, when they see us and get to know us, and I have seen this amongst a lot of the prisoners, when they watched our lives very cl- closely, you know, they were living with us. They said, oh, you are, in many ways, you know, you are uh, you're completely different. You're also, you know, like us. And they respected that. And that, many times, uh, you know, secular people, um, uh, let me just tell you, maybe it goes too far, but let me tell you, it's one time I was going to, uh, to, to, to apply for funds, and this, this organization, this were Western, it was, this were, uh, it was a Western organization, donor organization, said, no, no, we'll never give money to you, because you're a Christian agency, and, and Afghans don't like you. I said, let me tell you one thing, I said, we are Christians, we believe in one God, and, and they say they believe in, in four books, and, and we believe in three of them, and they know that we pray, and that we have certain moral standards. In fact, Afghans like us very much. They respect us for that. And I said, if you don't believe in God, uh, uh, they will not appreciate that. If you're an atheist, they will say, well, he's a kafir, definitely. you like the Russians, you know, who had no faith. And uh, so, so he quickly changed his subject, you know. And, uh, and this is what a lot of people do not understand. That, I mean, if we come as Christians, they know we are believers. Uh, we believe in God, and we we have, believe in our holy books, and we have certain moral values uh, that, in fact, a lot of these people highly appreciate that. And even a lot of the Taliban, they appreciate this about us. How, how do you know that they appreciated it? What, what are you talking about? Well, they, about? Did, they did tell us. I mean, when I was in prison, so many of the Taliban came and talked with us and discussed, uh, cussed, uh, they, they, they challenged us. They watched us every day, you know, and they said, you're very godly people. They said this many times about our ladies, you know. They said, we've watched these ladies, and they're different than others. We have seen many other foreigners and the way they behaved and what they have done and so on and so on. And they said, we're amazed uh, about them, you know. When the Taliban would challenge you, what would they say? Sorry? You, You said the Taliban would challenge you. What would they say? What did they ask? Usually they said, well, why are you not Muslims? You know, why don't you, uh, you know, why don't you become Muslims? And why don't you believe in our books? What would you say? 
So while I have in my faith everything that that I really desire, uh, the Bible speaks very clearly how I can have forgiveness of my sins. It shows us that we, when we follow Jesus, that we have eternal life. And did that answer satisfy them, or did they still feel that you would be better off Muslim? It depends, you know. Of course, uh, the, then the discussions went on and on and on. Says, well, uh, our book also says that, uh, you know, if you do this and this and this, you will, will go to heaven. Uh, but still there is that uncertainty in their faith, you know, on Judgment Day. Maybe they will not. Maybe they had done something. And I said, well, Jesus, what he promised me is if I repent and ask for forgiveness, that he will forgive my sins. And he has done that. And I know it in my heart. And well, they said, well, Jesus cannot do that. He cannot just forgive your, your sins. He cannot do that. Only Allah can do that. And you, you will see this on Judgment Day, whether he forgives you or not. I said, why, why should I now follow again another religion where again I have to follow all the strict commandments and all the strict uh, rules and, and at the end I'm not even sure whether God will forgive me. I, I want to stay in my faith. I found really everything that I need. George Taubman, talking to us from Germany. He hopes to resume his work with Shelter Now in Afghanistan within the next few months. Act 2. Does size matter if you're talking about a cross? This is a story of another man stuck in his faith, acting on his faith, in this case by building a big cross, the biggest in the Western Hemisphere, in fact, 45 miles east of Amarillo, Texas. Josh Noel went there with This American Life producer Alex Bloomberg. Here's Josh. From 20 miles away, the tallest cross in the Western Hemisphere doesn't quite look like a cross. It looks more like a mutant telephone pole, just whiter and shinier. But as you speed along Interstate 40, past the wide farms and grassy plains of the Texas Panhandle, the cross just keeps growing larger and larger, until it's twice the height of a telephone pole, then four times the height, then eight times. And because you can't tell exactly how far away it is, at some point you begin to wonder just how tall it's going to get, standing out there in the middle of the unrelenting flatness, under a wide blue sky and thick cotton ball clouds. The tallest cross in the Western Hemisphere is 190 feet tall, the height of a 19-story building. It's 12 feet across at the base. There's one bigger cross on the planet. It's in Madrid and was built by Francisco Franco, a fascist dictator. But here in America, we turn to the private sector for this sort of thing. A 52-year-old man named Steve Thomas decided to build it a few years back while driving past a gigantic strip club. Yeah, uh, the triple X establishment was on I-40, east of Amarillo. Three huge silos standing 30, 40 feet triple X's everywhere and flashing and I thought gosh around the country everywhere you look Satan has all the advertising he's got the, the jump on the gun there and I thought gosh why can't we outdo that but there's got to be a way we can advertise for Jesus in a much more grand way and uh, so I prayed to the Lord for about six months thinking I was going to build a billboard and after six months of trying to do it my way through a billboard, he gave me a vision of the cross. I mean, I just knew right then and there that the huge cross is what I was going to do. For most of us, such a vision would present logistical problems. But fortunately for the Lord, Steve Thomas is both a structural engineer and a millionaire, having made his fortune in the oil business. The cross is built out of white corrugated steel, the kind they use for industrial warehouses, and took 250 welders eight months to assemble. The day they poured the foundation, sales of ready-mixed concrete came to a stop in the Texas panhandle. 
In all, the cross cost Steve half a million dollars, but he says he would have spent more and built even taller if objects higher than 200 feet hadn't been subject to FAA regulation. Steve didn't want the government involved with his cross. The cross is so big that it can be hard to pray in front of. Because it's built of corrugated steel, you sort of feel like you're worshipping at the side of a grain silo. Instead, most people pray at smaller statues of Jesus that stand in a circle around the base of the cross, or at a life-size rendition of the crucifixion. There's a marble headstone on which a pair of hands cradle a tiny fetus, which is also very popular. The atmosphere is quiet and surprisingly church-like for something that's next to a highway. We spent two days at the cross to see if Steve's initial plan was working, to see if the cross is tempting people toward God the way a triple X theater might tempt people into sin. But in two days we saw no conversions. If Steve's idea was that the cross had the power to call people from the highway to God, it seems to work best with people who've already heard that call. Like a bunch of guys covered in tattoos who climb out of a van on their way home to Chicago from a church retreat in California. We're all ex, ex-gang members, ex-drug addicts, touched and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. About a dozen church members from Rocky, Oklahoma, jump out of their van, huddled for a minute, and then just started singing. <laughs> Go in that beautiful, beautiful there aren't many public places where people can just climb out of a car and burst into song. But we saw this happen twice. A man from Alpine, Arizona makes a monthly drive to a cancer clinic in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the only place able to treat his rare liver cancer. He usually stops at the cross on the way to Oklahoma, but not on the way back. Because uh, chemo, the chemotherapy and things that they do there, you know, you know, I'm feeling, generally feeling too bad to, to, and I want to get home as soon as I can. Then any little jolt, bump in the road, man, you can feel it. I guarantee you. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, my name's Burton Kennedy. Uh, I'm from North Carolina. Uh, I'm a long haul truck driver. Uh, my name's Greg Talese, and uh, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, I'm a truck driver. My name's Ricky Martin, and uh, I drive a truck. There are a lot of truck drivers here. Ricky Martin drove by the cross a bunch of times before he finally stopped. I was real upset over everything that was going on with my family. My mother's up in her 80s, and I was real worried that she didn't have no way of taking care of herself up in her golden years. So I was real upset, couldn't, th- couldn't drive, and uh, when I left here, I was at total at ease, and I just kind of went, wow, <laughs> maybe there is something to this place. At peak times, weekends during the summer, 2,000 people a day visit the cross. A lot of them are just tourists passing through, stopping quickly to take a look. But most use the cross for some sort of quiet moment with God. For some people, not many, the cross is an actual destination. They head onto the highway planning to show up here. I'm Shannon Berry. I'm from Leveland, Texas. This is my wife, Linda Berry. We're newlyweds. This is our honeymoon trip. Considering how Shannon and Linda met, it's no surprise they decided there was no better place for their honeymoon. They first spotted each other at a gospel festival and were later introduced by friends at a Memorial Day cookout. And I, we, we went out and had coffee. And, and what was strange about having coffee after the cookout was that we sat down on the sofa and 
we started talking before long we were praying and I mean we got into prayer so hard that the whole, first time I'd ever had the Holy Spirit in me I thought I knew Jesus you know I thought I knew Jesus but I didn't I found Jesus Christ that night Shannon just let go of my hand and got on his hands and knees and started crying and he knew immediately he had the Holy Spirit it, it's just like going from hot to cold it's just a cold chill you feel all over your body. It's not like anything you've ever felt before. You can tell. He knew immediately he had it. and We shared it with the whole trailer park that night. We went outside and we asked the Holy Spirit to go into every place we, we could just, see. It we was, it right in. We just waved it right it into each tremendous. house. And, and of course, uh, I, I have the Holy Ghost, so I have the tongue. So I started praying in tongues. and. Then I started giggling, and I couldn't stop giggling. And, I mean, it was like 2 o'clock, and Shannon kept saying, Oh, I, I feel it again. I just feel it again, and I feel it again. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And it was already 2 o'clock, and he had to go all the way to Leveland. After a first date like that, it seemed pretty clear they had to get married. I knew it. But the second date, I did. I asked her then. Today is nine weeks that we've known each other. Shannon and Linda sit in front of one of the statues at the base of the cross and pray that their marriage will be everything it should be, everything God wants it to be. In two days at the cross, the only person we talked to who didn't already have a heavy-duty kind of faith working for them was a college student named Heather. She was 20 years old, with a pierced navel and driving a heavily loaded pickup truck. She was traveling with her cat, a kitten named Tinsel, on her way from San Diego to Oklahoma City. Oh, well, I have school waiting for me and a job. I work at Hooters, so I got to go out there and deal with that. <laughs> but As fate would have it, Heather happened to be driving by the second largest cross on the planet just a few days after deciding she needed a big change in her life. Okay, I was at a bonfire with my friends, and you know, I'm sure it's well-known knowledge that almost everybody in California, like, smokes pot and drinks beer and, like, you know, and we're flakes or whatnot, and we're all hanging out and partying. And it suddenly hit me when all my friends, like, none of them have any intentions of growing up. They, they, I was telling them, I'm, I'm leaving California, I'm going to quit doing the partying scene. I was called queen of the bonfires because I had about four bonfires a week, or sometimes more. But um, I, I, I know I upset them that night because of the things that I was saying about how you're not going to grow up. But see, my mom does drugs still to this day. You know what I mean? So that bothers me. I don't like it when parents are doing drugs. Parents should not be doing drugs. And especially if their kids are, like, sitting around, like, watching and part and, like, having their kids give them a beer. Like, what kind of crap is that? Oh, sorry. So all this is on her mind as she speeds along Interstate 40 in the middle of nowhere. You know, driving along the road, I haven't thought about Jesus much or God much. I haven't found myself praying or, you know, thanking God for anything until I saw the cross until I pulled over and over there I had to touch his face over there and like I got a really really good feeling by just touching the statues. Heather points at one of the statues of Jesus that circled the cross. What did you see in the, the expression on uh, Jesus's face on the statue? I mean why did you want to touch it? Um, there's not so much as like pain in his face but just kind of like 
disappointment a little bit or hurt, you know, kind of like, I don't know, it looks almost like he blames himself in the, in the statue. What I get is that he was blaming himself at that moment because he failed or, or not, not failed technically, but there's just, it's something in his face, like he felt really bad at that time. You know, he's human there in a raw, you know, he's totally human. You know, and it just kind of brings you back that God's not so far away. He's right there. If the cross had been smaller, I probably wouldn't have stopped. And I mean, not like five feet smaller. I mean, it's still huge, but, you know, it's 195 feet. But if it was the size of these little ones, I probably wouldn't have taken the time to stop just because I want to get home, you know. <laughs> I've been driving. I've been on the road for like three days now. When Steve first erected the cross, he didn't put in benches or statues or anything. It didn't occur to him that people might want to stop. He only thought of it as a giant billboard. But people did stop. And over time, it became clear that the people who stopped wanted something more. They wanted to pray, they wanted to talk, often they wanted help. Steve and his family found themselves staying at the cross, ministering to people in need. There's now a staff of 14 on hand to counsel people and pray with them almost 24 hours a day. It's our last night at the cross, close to midnight, floodlights on the huge white structure, surrounded by deep black in all directions. We watch a truck pull in. The driver comes down from his rig and approaches a counselor named Les Weatherly. Yes, Excuse me, may I borrow your phone? The driver, whose name is Eric, says he wants to borrow the phone so he can pray with his wife, who's sick back home in Oklahoma. He doesn't reach her, so Les offers to pray with him. They walk up to the crucifixion scene. It's set off to the side, at the top of the set of wide amphitheater steps. They kneel and hold hands, and when Eric begins to pray, it's in a mix of English and Kiowa. He's a Kiowa Comanche Indian and an evangelical Christian. Father, I come to you as a burden to my heart. Watch over my wife. I have no, whatever I have, please give it to her. And Father, if doctors say that, that It's dark and lonely, and Eric is the only visitor at the cross. When he's done praying, he tells us that he's stopped here maybe 150 times in his truck route. Tonight, the reason why I stopped is, uh, my wife's uh, liver and kidney is not functioning like it should. And they don't know if they're going to go in. Uh, tomorrow morning, do surgery or not. You know, if everything's going real smooth, and the last thing you want to think about is eternity. When the suffering's coming your way, you stop and think about, well, maybe there's more to it than this this world. So it's these suffering events a lot of times that turns us around. When you first meet the guy who built the cross, Steve Thomas doesn't seem like the type that would understand suffering with his picture-perfect family. He's been married to his wife Bobby for 31 years. His son Zach is an all-pro linebacker for the Miami Dolphins. And his daughter Katina, who recently married one of her brother's teammates, 
is a former Miss Amarillo who won the Miss Texas swimsuit competition in 1997. But Steve's current family is very different from the one he grew up in. His parents were both alcoholics, and his dad was sometimes violent. This violence erupted one night when Steve was a kid. There had been clues that something was coming. I mean, he had been reading the Bible every night. My dad didn't go to church. We'd get up about seven. He'd been up since five reading the Bible, so we knew something was going on, but we didn't know what. Can you, would you be willing to tell me just what happened that night that your dad... You know, well, he took, a claw, he took a claw hammer after my sisters and, and my mother and then came upstairs after his brothers. And, and by the time he re- we'd heard all the commotion, we, we were awake. And, and uh, my mother had to have a plate. And all, my, both my sisters had brain surgery. My mother had brain surgery, and she had to have a plate inserted in her head. But, uh, How old were you? I was 17. I was oldest of five. So it ranged from 10 to 17. None of the kids died? No, nobody died. But uh, my sisters, uh, they really were not the same. They're, they've had some trouble mentally in their school and schooling and stuff. With their grades, they wasn't as, didn't have the grades that us brothers did. And I think it's because of the injuries they had from that incident. And the incident ended that night how? Well, my dad shot himself. And he lived about 12 more days and then died. Steve Thomas believes he was chosen by God to build the cross. Quite literally, he believes he was selected, perhaps even intentionally molded with the traumas of his childhood, which didn't end with his father's death. Ten years later, his mother killed herself, too. You see all these people driving down the interstate. The ones that drive by are probably having everything hunky-dory. Everything's running real good in their life. They've probably got plenty of money Everybody's healthy. And they look at the cross and say, huh, not bad. Then they think about getting to the beach in California. You know? But then you get the people coming down the interstate that are trying to find, find, find out where they're going to get their next dollar. And their, their wife is suffering from cancer. Maybe their, one of their sons is in, in drugs and they're driving along. And they're just, they just whip in here. They don't know why. Like I say, we asked them why, and they said, I don't know, I just came. And that's because they're searching for something to change that. They want suffering to go away. When he first built the cross, Steve thought of it as kind of an advertisement for Jesus. He didn't realize that it was really a massive beacon, calling out to the suffering and promising relief. He started out wanting a billboard, but what he ended up with was kind of a church. Josh Noel here in Chicago. Coming up, factory workers at the Epiphany plant. In a minute, from Public Radio International and Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues.
This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, during this Christmas season, faith, people acting on their faith, people stuck in their faith, for better or worse. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, The Epiphany Biz. Bill Leitchik tells this story of faith when it is held by other people. And so the Lord says, go to Peoria. Give away all you possess and go to Peoria. He says, if you desire to do my will, if you truly want to be my servants, go to Peoria. He says, I have a place for you there. And so, what do you do? I suppose if the word really comes and comes clear enough, you don't have much of a choice. You have to listen and do what God tells you. You have to divest yourself of every single thing you own, break the news to your friends and your family, your mother-in-law, neighbors, turn off the gas and electric, stop the mail, quit your jobs, pull the kids out of school, pack up a van, and leave everything and everyone you know and head off to Peoria. You drive all day and night and reach, at long last, the outskirts of town. You cross the town line and pull off by the side of the highway, the fields lying flat and covered with dirty snow. And you wait and pray. Pray and wait. I spent all morning on the phone with a man who did this, gave away everything and led his family to Peoria, sat at the outskirts of town as the light faded, his wife and kids shivering in the cold, the trucks and cars rushing past. God had only directed him as far as Peoria, which is why they waited for the next directive at the town line. And yes, it all sounds completely crazy to him too, he says, which makes me like him. He knows that this is beyond reason. He knows that it's a thing no one could understand, the fact that he and his wife both received word from God like this, and that God would be so specific, and that they would actually do it, give away everything and follow this voice to Illinois. The story was sent to guideposts a religious-minded monthly where my job is to rewrite these true stories of hope and inspiration. It's not sold on newsstands, but the magazine has more than 3 million subscribers. For more than 50 years, the magazine has been rolling out its brand of good news to the world, first-person accounts taken from actual events that are testaments to faith of some sort. As the magazine's mission statement says, our articles present tested methods for developing courage, strength, and positive attitudes through faith in God. My job is to make sure that the story becomes a guidepost story, make sure that it conforms to the expectations of our readers. The story needs to have its all walks of life beginning, its crisis or test of faith, its dark night of the soul, and its triumph of spirit, its turnaround. God's goodness, whatever that means, must shine through somewhere, some way, somehow. In-house, we call this God factor in the story its cello, like the instrument. And when line edits come back to us, we get directives like more cello, or less cello, or where's the cello. Everything is in the service of the cello, and the cello sets up the story's payoff. Everything works out, they find their home in Peoria, or even better, they find their home wherever God wants them to be.
stories run the gamut. A guy rescues manatees in Florida. The crop duster or beekeeper or fisherman survives some great accident or addiction or loss. Someone finds an unopened letter from World War II and forwards it to the widow. A man goes to Peoria. The variations are endless for us line workers at the Epiphany plant. In the Epiphany business, each epiphanic moment is called the takeaway. And takeaways need to be short, sweet, and positive. Variations of the I trusted in God and that has made all the difference theme. Amen. Most of my days at work are filled with people who talk to God. Help this, rescue these, give us that, thank you for those. What made the Peoria story so fascinating was that God not only spoke back to these people, but that he got back to them in such a specific, puckish way. I love the image of them on the side of that highway, wondering what to do next. They're all cold and hungry and scared and disheartened and dispirited in the dark they drive to that first cheap motel they see. The five of them stay until they're down to their last twelve dollars. Again, their prayers are answered and they find a church. They place their last dollar in the collection plate and find a home that same day, and so on. It's a crazy, miracle-laden story, which barely makes sense, really. Yet talking to this man, he isn't the unquestioning fanatic that I had imagined. In fact, by the middle of our conversation, I'm convinced that something extraordinary has happened to him. I'm convinced that, in his own way, he heard the voice of God. And I'm convinced he made a cold sweat leap of faith, and that he had doubts, and that he has a deeper faith now because of this test. I punch out that night with a glimmer of what it's like when what you believe and what you do are actually one and the same thing. And when I get the story back for revision the next morning, my editor has written over my cello-filled takeaway in big block letters, Preach it, Brother Billy, preach it. I feel like a whistleblower telling you this, these inner workings of the ghostwriter, the anonymous content provider, the humble commodifier of insight and faith, the sad truth is that I spend a couple of days on the Peoria story, and it's gone, and the next thing is on my desk, roughly one story per week. Next week is Wedding Lady, the week after is Iwo Jima Guy. Yet still, there are worse ways to make a living. In fact, it's a surprisingly pleasant kind of work, even for the more secular clock punchers among us. The fact is, I hear commands as well vague and small-voiced, and I believe everyone I know hears them. What really is the difference between go to Peoria and make the film, or write the book, or marry the girl, or any of the countless passions that guide our days? These are all things my friends expend great amounts of energy working for and dreaming about, and they're all acts of faith in one way or another, all the urges that carry us through our lives and give us meaning and help us make sense of the accidents that befall us. And here comes the cello when I think of it this way, when I think how we have to admit that the best in us is utterly mad, or starts out utterly mad, a dim voice urging us on to our own kinds of Peoria. Bill Leitchik lives in New York. His story first appeared on the website 
openletters.net. For first be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. The problem with faith is that often the faithful do not necessarily agree with each other about how to worship God. Susie Puts Dreary tells the story of some people in that situation in a church in Tennessee. When Bethel Presbyterian Church got a white minister, they started to worship differently. Lucy Cox has been going to Bethel her entire life, ever since she was an orphan and the church took her in. When she was younger, Bethel was a place where you went to hear the gospel, to sing and rejoice and be moved by the Lord. Moved, almost physically, not just in your head. I used to sing, Mm -hmm. top of my voice, because when that spirit really hit, I'm not Lucy, but now I do it my pastor's way. Nice and quiet. When I'm here, Mm -hmm. but when I'm not here, I do it God's way. On some Sundays after services at Bethel, about half of the people from the congregation get in their cars and drive to another church where they can sing the way Lucy Cox likes. They've been doing this for 15 years. A little background. In 1985, the Presbyterian Church in Tennessee hired a young preacher to serve several churches in Dandridge, Tennessee. The minister they hired, Ralph Hutchison, is a slight, earnest, red-headed guy. Of the four churches Ralph was called to serve, three of them had entirely white congregations. The other church was Lucy's church, Bethel, whose congregation is entirely black. And for about five years, this arrangement with the four churches worked out pretty well, with Ralph dividing his time among the four churches, preaching at each twice a month. Ralph was also getting to be sort of an activist during this time. He preached about the evils of racism and other social justice issues, and he got involved with a group in Knoxville that was protesting some of the U.S. government's policies in Central America. The group was trying to show that the U.S. government was causing the deaths of innocent people in the region, and Ralph ended up with a leading role. We had a mock funeral um, designed to get publicity, and it did. The TV cameras were there. We carried a casket down Market Square, and I was in the front of the procession in my clergy robe, and so it was on TV. And a couple weeks later, I get a visit from the patriarch of the church, came in and sat down in the office. Um, and basically what he told me was that he uh, completely supported me politically. He thought what I was doing was right. The policies of the government were wrong. No problem there. So I was kind of nodding, and he said... But uh, people in the congregation are really uncomfortable when their neighbors ask them why they saw their preacher on TV. Ralph and his co-pastor found themselves being cast out of the three white churches they had been called to serve. In the end, the only church Ralph had left was the black church, Bethel. We were crushed. This is Roberta Robinson, who's been a member of Bethel since she was an infant and is a church elder, like a deacon. She says the congregation couldn't believe what the white churches did. And it was one of their own. That's one thing we just couldn't imagine any human, one human being treating another like that, especially uh, Christian believers. I really felt for uh, both uh, Ralph and Dale. They were... Really, just getting a, t- a little taste 
of what uh, we as a people had uh, went through. It was in a different form, but literally it was the same thing. That's how we got stuck with it. <laughs> it did take some time, though, for both Ralph and the members of his congregation to get used to each other. Ralph is more liberal than they are, certainly on social issues. His regular full-time job is as an activist against nuclear weapons. And the first time I went to one of his services, it was years ago, but I still remember being shocked to hear him refer to God in passing as a she. Ralph also preaches about things like gay rights, and he says when he does preach on God's blessing of gay people and their love for one another, some in the congregation, the men in particular, just sit in the pews and sort of shake their heads. Here's Roberta again. Oh, uh, well, I can remember when I went to his, well, I call it a trial sermon, and he was preaching, and I thought, what on earth is he talking about? Here's Ralph. The congregation was responsive. You know, during preaching, they talked back to you. Uh, that was not an experience that I'd had before. This is Sue Pruitt, who stayed a member of Bethel even after she moved 30 miles away. It's real funny. When he first came, he, you know, we'd do a lot of singing, you know, and he sung good, but I guess kind of like a white person. <laughs> he sang so hard now, you can see the, the veins in his neck, you know. Puts a little movement to it and a little beat to it, you know, so now he hangs in there. <laughs> <laughs> Gradually, though, they began to settle into one another. Ralph got married and had kids, and the congregation was thrilled about that. They had potlucks and Sunday services and Martin Luther King dinners. They even worked together to start an anti-discrimination organization in the county. But even though they're getting along great, there's still one thing that sort of separates them. Ralph has changed the way they practice their own faith in their own church. And it's here that the members of Bethel Church, and Ralph, too, see race playing a role. This is Calvin Ballinger, the church patriarch. In the black preaching style, uh, it has a has a uh, charisma, you would say. There's times I like to get, or you say, the emotion of the gospel of, of the black churches, you know. If it is emotion, he's hiding it. That's why I say he can't handle emotion. I don't know if he ever will handle emotion or not. Emotion is good. Well, I say it's good for the soul, you know, at least he's been touched. Lucy Cox likes Ralph. She's close to him, gets a lot from him. But she says he doesn't bring her the main thing she wants from her minister. I think, for me, his role as a minister, heat me hot with the word of God. Bring me the word. If I can't stand it, let me pull my shoes off. Ralph's sermons aren't designed to heat anyone hot with the Word of God. He's not a big shouter. He's cerebral. He writes out his sermons beforehand and then recites them word for word at Sunday service. He sounds a lot like Garrison Keillor at the pulpit, without the jokes. He makes up stories about fictional characters to raise whatever issue he's trying to get people to think about. Last Tuesday, Marty Bryson made his way down the hallway to the fourth door on the left. He knocked softly and he heard Evelyn Morrison's voice say, come in. When she saw Marty, she smiled. My most faithful visitor, she said. I'm sure Marty a quick shocked. excerpt on the radio just Evelyn sounds corny. It's hard to express really why this sermon was so riveting, but it really was, and not just for me. He had us all. It was kind of like a spell being broken when he said amen, signaling the end of the sermon. 
People came back from the world he had sent us to, finding the page for the next hymn, shifting in their seats, getting ready for the offering. Everyone tells me this is something they like about Ralph. They like that he's smart, and they like to hear how he interprets the Bible. And the stuff they don't like, they kind of shrug off. Except when it comes to heating them hot with the Word of God. When Ralph first started at Bethel, one of the elders took him aside and tried to show him how to preach in a more dynamic way. Ralph says it just felt wrong. I mean, I can mimic a, a evangelical preacher, whether they're white or black. So I know um, what the sort of the rhetorical patterns are of that kind of preaching. They're not particularly authentic to me. And wouldn't it seem weird to them if I stood up and preached a, a sermon using the cadences and the rhetorical devices of Martin Luther King Jr., except I'm this little white guy, right? And so they, they would think, what's with that? You know, uh, for a lot of people, the, the emotional side of spirituality is the safe and the easy side. Um, and they like to go there because it feels good. Um, and so you go there week after week. You go on Sunday, you get that pick-me-up, and it might last until Wednesday. Um, and I think, more so now than I used to, I think, that there is great value in having your um, life enriched by emotional spirituality and those experiences. However, if that's all your religion is to you, then your religion is failing you in a great way. Lord God, you put him behind the cross. Father, we know that you're a big God. Lord, we know that we can't enclose you. It's a Sunday afternoon, about an hour after the Bethel service ended, and many of the congregants are at the all-black AME Zion Church a few miles outside of town. When I get there, I see Roberta and Sue and Calvin and others who regularly go to Bethel. It's hard to believe that some of these folks are the same people. At Bethel, they sit pretty quietly during the service. Here, they're bursting out with joy, so happy, completely happy, and unrestrained. The big difference between Ralph and his congregation is over more than style. What several members patiently explain to me more than a few times is that the style means something. It gets to basic differences in how you feel God, how present and alive he is for you in church, in music, in your daily life. And this leads to different answers to the question of what people want to get out of church or out of any worship experience. We as the black people, uh, our religion or their religion, our I'm referring to my great-grandparents and all. That was really all they had to rely on, was their faith. And they would get so emotional just thinking about, well, I'm being mistreated here on earth, but I know that I've got something to look forward to. And they would really, really get emotional about it. And you have to be black. I I'm telling you, you just have to be black to understand that. You'll hear him say, well, just hold on. Uh, no matter how life is here, it's, there's, go there's a better life. Just hold on. Now, you'll hear that elsewhere 
Other churches, yes. But you're not going to hear that spoken much in the Presbyterian church. So, uh, yes, there's there's a, a lot of difference, I, I feel. Instead of talking about the afterlife, Ralph focuses on other things. Oh, he, he encourages us, you know, like if he knows that uh, there's injustice and that we should, as a people, although we've been subject to injustice, that we should work toward justice. Now, he, he, he stresses that an awful lot. Try to straighten out the world we're in. We, I don't hear, I can't remember hearing him speak of the the next world. Not that much. Not that much. It's not my job to save souls. Sometimes people think that should be my job too in my congregation. That's okay. But I think the Bible is very clear that salvation is of this world promise. It's not that Ralph doesn't understand what Roberta's talking about. Ralph actually grew up in a Pentecostal church in rural Pennsylvania, a church that was all about the afterlife and stirring up emotions to a fever pitch, on schedule, every Sunday. And in many times in our cases, that emotional pitch was one uh, in which the primary emotion was fear. You were to be afraid of God who was angry with you because you sinned. You knew you sinned, didn't you? Well, yeah, we knew we did. And uh, God was going to get you, and so there's hellfire, there's brimstone, there's eternal damnation. Um, I think as far as they were aware, the, the sum total of what they were driving for was to save people's souls so that people wouldn't burn in hell, so that people would go to heaven. It was all about that. There wasn't anything about necessarily making your life better. This is Ralph's beef with a purely emotional service. Religion, he says, should give you real help with your everyday problems. It's not that we wait and it all gets sorted out uh, before the judgment seat on some great day in the future. It's here and now this stuff is supposed to work. I mean, where I grew up, we were in a lower middle class uh, situation, um, um, people living really difficult lives. Um, um, if somebody had a difficult life that, uh, you know, a, a woman whose husband was running around on her, that wasn't addressed in church at all, except we might pray for his soul, you know, that he would get saved, he would get right. The whole deal was, get your soul right with God. The question I kept asking the congregants over and over at Bethel was, since he wasn't exactly their ideal type of minister, had they ever thought of getting rid of Ralph, like the white churches did? But everyone I asked gave me sort of a curious look, like I was asking a really strange question. Before Ralph, Bethel hadn't really had a preacher in 30 years. And once they got Ralph Hutchison, they weren't going to let him go. It hadn't even occurred to them to get rid of him. He was theirs. We really don't have much choice, meaning uh, in the Presbytery field, there's Presbyterian church field, there's not that many black ministers. So we take what we can get, and it just happened to be a white minister. For his part, Ralph agrees that Bethel might be better off with a black minister. Well, I think there's a number of reasons why it would be nice if they were able to have an African-American uh, minister. Um, it's still something the Presbytery should talk about. They shouldn't assume that Bethel has nobody or they get a bleeding heart liberal white preacher um, to work part-time. I mean, that there ought to be more possibilities than that. 
they should have them and I should get out of the way so they can. Laying it all out like this, I think it might sound gloomier than it really is. The congregants at Bethel are getting everything they want from church. They get the Word of God from Ralph, the Spirit of God from other churches, and a feeling of congregation from each other. Susie puts Dreary in Campbellsville, Tennessee. Our program is produced today by Wendy Dora and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jonathan Goldstein, Starley Kine, and Diane Cook. Senior producer Julie Snyder. Music help from Mr. John Connors. Advice on the scriptures today from Doris Kelly. Other thanks to Billy Collins and the Reverend James White. If you'd like to buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380, or visit our website where you can do that, or you can listen to our programs for free, www.thisamericanlife.org, right there. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, and from the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. His ways are mysterious. None can know them. He keeps commanding us. Go to Peoria. Give away all you possess and go to Peoria. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.